Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Uh, many of you may receive my Sunday weekly commusing article where I address a breadth of issues from the spiritual to the physiological to the sociopolitical. And on occasion, I will also record an audio version of these articles and release it here as a bonus episode. Well, I've done my damnedest to make today's exhortation equally reflective and entertaining. I'm as much dedicated in podcasting and in life to the hysterical as I am to the historical. So I ask my family members for a little grace if I occasionally take some creative license around the edges. A primary purpose here today is to amuse you while also amusing myself. What a deal. We're all connected. I'd like to remind everyone that there is a veritable treasure trove of courses from the world's greatest doctors, authors, teachers, and thought leaders on our Commune course platform. You can sample them for free for 14 days by going to onecommune.com slash trial. I am also regularly prowling the Serengeti of Instagram if you want to follow what I'm ranting about at Jeff Krasnow. Without further delay, here's today's missive titled, Who Am I? In 1901, a young man was sitting on the holy mountain Arunachala in South India when a scholar came to him with a burning question. It is the same existential question that every curious person has posed from time immemorial. The scholar was Sri Siva Prakasam Pillai. The young man was to become the renowned Saint Sri Ramana Maharshi. The question was, who am I? There are many spokes from which to approach the hub of this inquiry, ranging from the prosaic to the mystical. I will start here, and perhaps in the excavation of my own history, you will be inspired to examine your own. I am an unqualified mutt. My maternal lineage is Scottish, English, Swedish, and un peu petit Francais. My maternal lineage is Scottish, English, Swedish, and un petit peu Francais. Sensible and industrious, my mother's family settled in the Midwest. My mother's mother played the bells in the same Methodist church in Evanston, Illinois, for 90 years. She died without a cavity at 104. Her longevity was certainly not attributable to the nutrient-rich diet about which I often prattle on. The abbot's supper table was prone to tuna casseroles, Oscar Mayer bologna and cheese sandwiches, salads of iceberg lettuce, and stiff, unripened tomato tranches topped with bottled ranch dressing. My grandma Fran appeared to be the same age for the last 70 years of her life. You could peruse her photo albums dating from 1940 to 2010 and have little clue to what decade you were witnessing. At 30, she swapped out flapper dresses for austere, starchy blouses and puritanical monochromatic ankle-length skirts. Handy with a needle and thread, she darned her socks and sweaters. She wasted not and wanted not. 
I don't think I told her that I loved her until she reached a hundred. In her time and place, both shirts and emotions were meant to be buttoned up. She outlasted three husbands, all of whom were indistinguishable in their Edwardian dress code and manner. I only really knew the last one, Art Johnson, and did my very best to sidestep him. There was a certain John Birch Society Coke bottle glasses look to him. I remember that he once wore a thin black necktie on a casual boating excursion, a tie on a boat ride. How humorless could one possibly be? While I never trust those who wear their religiosity on their sleeve, I will say that Art Johnson was the same man Saturday night as he was Sunday morning, dreary and severe, as if any moment he might wrap your knuckles with a hickory stick. Grandma Fran was thrifty and assiduously avoided debt, which perhaps contributed to her long life through one Great Depression, two world wars, and three spousal funerals, she never stressed a day in her life and valued the things she had, qualities I have tried to emulate with only moderate success. My paternal heritage is a good deal swarthier. My great-grandparents were part of a massive migration from the dingy shtetls of Russia and Eastern Europe at the turn of the 19th century. Embarking from Odessa, Ukraine, Nathan landed at Ellis Island, where he was supposedly bestowed the surname Glassman to reflect his vocation. Others, tattered and impecunious, came from Romania and Poland to the shores of America in pursuit of the promise of its dream. It is from this diaspora that my beloved Nana and Papa were eventually distilled. During holiday time, all the various grandchildren descended upon their gilded, opulent, over-leveraged, absurdly mirrored apartment in North Hollywood, Florida. The Thanksgiving table was a surfeit of steaming noodle kugel, oil-drenched potato latkes, fat-dripping brisket, stomach-turning gefilte fish, and home-baked rugula. After dinner, Nana would clandestinely usher each grandchild one by one into her massive walk-in closet. She would open up her safe and grab a $20 bill that had been meticulously folded down to the size of a postage stamp. She'd put her lips softly to my ear as she stuffed the bill into my palm and whisper, You know you're my favorite. She so relished and adored this ritual that it continued well into my manhood. After she went to bed, all five of her favorite grandchildren would pool our collective loot and laugh uproariously. Indeed, the dinner table was a confection of the characteristics of my Jewish side, sloppy and gossipy, brimming with the drama of love and money. In a valiant attempt to split the difference, my parents chose to conduct their nuptials in a Unitarian church. This decision appeased everyone and satisfied no one, a recurring outcome in matters of religion. I grew up sporadically attending Unitarian services and Sunday school, which, to my best recollection, portrayed Jesus as a nice Jewish boy inspired to do good work. In other words, a hippie.
I don't physically resemble my parents in the least. My olive skin color belies my genetics and suggests an extracurricular dalliance with a frisky postman. The balance of my family is pale as the moon while I hoard ultraviolet rays like a squirrel does acorns. I'm tan all winter. I suppose the melting pot of my ethnicity is hardly unique among Americans, unless you are native to this land or have been brought here against your will, well, then you are an immigrant. Across multiple centuries, the insularity of most migrant groups has eroded and bred a multiculture, a society of lovable mutts. Now, this phenomenon doesn't make our initial inquiry into the nature of self any easier. I am a Scottish, English, French, Swedish, Ukrainian, Russian, Polish, Romanian, Methodist, Unitarian Jew with a keen interest in Eastern religions. My peripatetic youth only compounded the conundrum of self-identity. As a young babe, I was perambulated through the lush landscapes of the Lake District of Northern England. My memory is about as foggy as the damp and dewy mornings, but I do recall the endless bounty of fresh berries of every variety. As I got older, my mother and I would fill buckets with luscious and baconed mulberries, blueberries, and blackberries and shuttle them back to the kitchen where Mrs. Pat was baking fresh bread. When I was four, we moved to Spain. I attended preschool in Santiago de Compostela, where I wore one shoe that had an additional block of cork fixed to the bottom of it to address my hip dysplasia. My preternaturally chubby cheeks were the target of the wrinkly, bony fingers of street-strolling gray-haired Spanish abuelas. On more than one occasion, a dotty old bat on the sidewalk would unilaterally lunge at me to pinch my fleshy face, only to be met with a block of cork swung swiftly into her shin. Yes, I was cheeky. I went to kindergarten in Brazil. I've written previously about my torturous experiences navigating the savannah of the Brazilian schoolyard, but the stories are worthy of some redundancy. Repetition, after all, is central to art, particularly music. I remember Bert Konigsberg, my erstwhile piano teacher, declare over and over that in every epiphanous passage of music, something changes while something repeats. And back to Brazil, I stood in the yard with the other kids. It was 1975. I was at the American school in Rio de Janeiro. There was a mix of students at the American school, mostly Brazilian and a smattering of foreign nationals from the United States and Britain and other parts of Europe. English was predominant in the classroom, but on the playground, the linguistic currency was Portuguese, specifically Carioca, the slangy dialect native to Rio. My juvenile brain sponged up the language with relative ease. We had moved to Rio from Spain. The transition from Galician Spanish to Portuguese was simpler for the non-conceptual child brain. I was trading in sounds, language, as music, not as vocabulary lessons. And of course, I was heaved into fluency by a force greater than anything cognitive, the innate instinct to belong. 
The yard outside the main building was sloped at one end, and it was a favorite pastime to run along the flat section and then jump onto your bum and slide down the slope. The grass had given way to dirt halfway down, forming a landing strip of sorts. This was a ritual that I avoided. My body wasn't built for such nimble maneuvers. I was chubby. My paunchy belly hung over my jeans. My thighs chafed just enough to wear down the denim to a smooth threadbareness. I stood on the sidelines listening to the school bully, Bobito, direct traffic down the slope. The soundscape was chaotic. Now what possessed me, I don't remember, but a sudden surge of confidence thrust me into line and I poised myself the best I could. My turn. And I ran toward the slope, flung myself awkwardly like a baby robin's first flight. It wasn't the smoothest landing and no distance records were set, but I did it. I made it down the slope. A couple barks of Americano, my reward. Now, more sure of myself, I trudged back up the hill and back into the queue. I cinched my belt a notch, tugged on my polo. This approach had more verve. I launched up, landed on my butt, and heard the sound. Curious how the brain can immediately process sonic phenomena into material reality? It was a ripping noise that made all other elements of existence momentarily disappear. I had torn my jeans straight down the crack of my ass. What's more, my tidy whitey underwear, now available to the yard, had been stained by the dirt path. This sent Bobito into paroxysms of rapturous laughter and joy as he belted out, the American shot his pants. The refrain was repeated again and again. The American shot his pants. The American shot his pants. A catchy tune it must have been as it echoed across the yard. I stood at the bottom of the slope, naked, nowhere to hide, eyes welled, lip bit with nothing but self-hatred and embarrassment. Fight, flight, freeze, or in this case, find the angle from which the least amount of people can see your stained underwear and shuffle back to the classrooms. Finally, off the Serengeti and back into the relative safety of the school, I found my backpack and did my best to sling it awkwardly behind me in attempt to camouflage my accident. I limped into the nurse's office, purporting an awful headache, one that apparently must have caused the nurse to think that I shat my pants. I must go home, I told her. I must go home. My mother was summoned and dutifully arrived. I made my brisk walk of shame back across the yard, clumsily, as if I was in a three-legged race with myself. One last lingering coda of... The American shat his pants, faded into the distance. This was the folklore of my youth, the polar opposite of the hero's journey with all of its classic archetypes, the bully, the nurse, the tender mother, the ego, 
the shame, the self-loathing. The incessant bouncing from country to country that I bore as a child had its benefits. I was immersed in various cultures and enjoyed their trappings. The left hemisphere of my brain, the locus of language, was a flourishing garden. But every year, my social connections were erased, and I was forced to begin again, wiggling my way like a fat worm into pre-existing cliques of friends in a new school, in a new country, a new dialect. And this struggle became the story of my life, the incessant need to fit in, to be liked, to assimilate, to seek the approval of others, to base my identity in what other people think of me. It was what led me to get into a taxi cab 35 years later with my three daughters, recognize that the driver was Jamaican, and subconsciously muster a thick Rastafarian accent. Take me uptown, man! As if a giant dreadlock had sprung from my head. My girls looked at me horrified and embarrassed as the cabbie eyed my undeniable whiteness with confusion and pity. This phenomenon presses on. If you listen to my podcast, you'll quickly notice the accents I adopt with various guests. A southern drawl with Matthew McConaughey, a cockney brogue with Russell Brand, a thundering Viking-like Dutch burr with Wim Hof. This penchant is bottom-up. It emerges from below the crust of consciousness. It has become a biological imperative, an involuntary adaptive dance that I implement for the purpose of connection. The social scientist Brene Brown makes an astute distinction between fitting in and belonging. Fitting in is changing who you are to be accepted. Belonging is being accepted while never compromising your authentic self. Of course, a five-year-old isn't equipped to make this delineation. The renowned addiction and trauma expert Gabor Mate contends that people, especially children, will always sacrifice authenticity for attachment. In other words, the need for connection trumps our yearning to be our true selves. The experiences of my childhood are, of course, reflective of something more profound and universal. Our natural state is one of connection, most literally in the womb. And we ache to return to this place of oneness and union. In the discomfiture of our separation, we'll do almost anything to be loved, to be part of something greater than ourselves. I have compassion for that drawer-stained chubster. I was simply using the tools I had to survive. However, I now recognize all of my shortcomings, the lack of self-love that pushed me down that playground slope in the first place, the false pride not to cry, the lying to the nurse, the shame born out of an absence of empathy for myself. These are all deficiencies of the ego. This is the spell under which so many of us live. We believe we are what others think of us. We are what we do or what we have. We are separate from others, in competition with others, separate from nature and 
ultimately separate from the divine. Ironically, over time, my trauma has also become my superpower. If I'm good at anything, it is fostering community. I so longed to belong that creating connection became the thread that weaves my entire life together. It makes me chuckle to think that I founded a festival company, Wanderlust, that grew to 68 events in 20 countries, in large part as a product of my childhood trauma. Now, Wanderlust and Commune are happy outcomes, but not all trauma manifests so sunnily. I wager that most of the world's most salient problems, from genocide and homelessness to global warming and income inequality, have their roots in our own personal biographies of inadequacy, to our stories of separation. At a recent gathering in Topanga, my friend and marvelous vegan chef Jason Vorobel asked Gabor Mate a question so simple yet so difficult to untangle. How do we recognize our true authentic self when it shows up? Is it a little voice with invisible eyes that hovers a foot above our heads and murmurs, that's not you, the real you would never do that. Is this omniscient witness your authentic self? Or is this whisperer simply yet another projection of consciousness Another story chalked temporarily on the blackboard of awareness. Now, perhaps there's no empirical formula for identifying authenticity. Its essence is mystical. In other words, it needs to be felt, not said. When you are flush with confidence and effervescence or snuggled in serenity and at peace, well, then perhaps you know your true self through its sensory signatures. It's curious though, because I feel most like myself when I'm not any one thing. I'm nattering on about Alan Watts in the upper received pronunciation of British aristocracy. And then the next moment, I'm speaking Francais. I visit my father, now settled unsurprisingly in Southern Florida himself, and I assume a certain Jewishness but back in my natural habitat, I gravitate back to the Tao. I am whatever serves connection. It's at once philanthropic and self-loving to do so, a fulfillment of the golden rule to love thy neighbor as thyself. And this points quite directly to the nature of quantum matter. There is no such thing as a thing. A thing is a thought. It's a think. It's an abstraction that enables us to cogitate and communicate. But reality is not fixed. Matter can be understood as energy, a dance of vibrating particles in a constant state of construction and destruction. And like a subatomic particle, I fill the electron shells of those around me, temporarily making both my tango partner and myself whole. Now, from a physiological perspective, we know that there is nothing remotely stable or permanent to our being. 
You have experienced billions of cellular deaths and rebirths since you began listening to this screed, like a flame or waterfall or a whirlpool. There is a physical continuity to our form, but everything that makes it up has moved on. Given that consciousness likely results from a fortuitous combination of atoms in the brain, why should our psychology be any different? We are anchored to our sense of self through a feeling of physical and psychological continuity. We look more or less the same day to day. A mere flip through a photo album is enough to demonstrate that nothing about this physical organism is permanent. Am I the cherubic baby, the disheveled college student, or the distinguished denizen of middle age that delivers this podcast? Of course, I'm none of these things. I am a process, spontaneously emerging moment to moment. Psychologically, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves day to day also moor our self-identity. But upon closer inspection, our personal folklore is as transient as our gut bacteria. Our opinions, priorities, and affiliations are fickle over time. Even our most personal stories bend to comport to the human we want to be on a particular day. True authenticity is letting go of the stories you tell yourself about yourself and simply being here and now in the river's current, purposeless and impermanent. Surely you have tasted the nectar of flow state in which discursive thought dissipates and action yokes with intention. In this space that has no place, we sever the Cartesian conflation of thinking and being. Unshackled by the ego, the symbol that we give ourselves, we inhabit a lightness of being, a merger of self and the world. The true authentic self recognizes its oneness with the universe, its character as the delegated adaptability of foundational cosmic intelligence. For being a separate self is playing a part, being an actor, a dramatist personae. Whether we know it or not, we're all mutts and chameleons, because moment to moment we are nothing but fluctuating energy seeking connection. Who am I? It turns out that my authentic self is no self at all. Damn it. The Buddha was right again. Cheerio. Ciao. A te logo. A biento. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Commune Podcast. Feel free to drop me a note any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com. And if so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. Music